Welcome to episode 168 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, I'm joined today for our interview by David Sanger, the chief Washington correspondent for the New York Times. Welcome, David. Great to be with you. And uh, 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 joining us for the news roundup, uh, uh, we continue our uh, practice of bringing in uh, outsiders uh, with new perspectives uh, uh, with Karen Eltis, who's a professor of law at the University of Ottawa and an affiliate of the Center for Information Technology Policy at Princeton University. Karen, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad you're here. Uh, uh, we also have on the line uh, uh, Maury Shank, uh, who is our former all everything thing in that Steptoe's London office and uh, a, a technology advisor, lawyer, uh, investor, uh, director. Uh, Maury, good to have you. Good to be here, Stuart. Uh, especially since we'll be talking uh, uh, right out of the box about things that have been happening in the UK. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS, the, holding the record for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. So why don't we get started um, uh Theresa May, after the uh, very recent uh, uh, van and knifing attacks uh, in uh, uh, London, uh, uh, boy, it's not even possible to say, oh, it's the London Bridge attack, because there's been two of those. Uh, um, uh, Theresa May, who's in the middle of a hard-fought, surprisingly hard-fought campaign, uh, uh, said, uh, enough is enough. Uh, uh, We're going to do something about this. Uh, I thought there were a couple of interesting things in her statement. Uh, uh, One, she called out Islamic extremism, uh, which, uh, you know, uh, all our newspapers told us was a a sign of um, being a a rube and a bumpkin when Trump uh, used those words. Uh, But apparently now it's okay to say because a European has used it. Uh, uh, And uh, she talked about how... uh, technology companies are going to have to do more um, and that there needs to be some kind of international regulation of technology companies' contribution to terrorist um, speech and terrorist recruitment. Um, uh, Maury, uh, uh, can you give us a little more color on uh, what Theresa May had to say? Well, you know, people, people are used to attacks in London. So I think it's probably not quite as big a deal here, putting to one side the fact that it's uh, an obvious tragedy for the people who are directly affected, uh, but not as big a deal as it seems from the American media. But these things having happening happened, and in the media, middle of a media campaign, uh, you know, I think one has to say something about it. Um, you know, I won't comment on the appropriateness of talking about Islamic extremism, but I do think from a European perspective, and maybe this is without the constitutional right to free speech, it seems um, okay to do something, particularly to make U.S. Internet companies do something about it. But even with the free speech right, you know, we have some exceptions. It's fighting words, and where we have mass media-like broadcasts, we we regulate some of the aspects of what can be said. Um, and I think people, a lot of people think a close look needs to be taken at it uh, about uh Terrorist recruitment. Yeah, I, I I I think that that's right. Even even in the U.S., uh, uh, you can certainly uh, uh, encourage companies to uh, um, stop terrorist recruiting. It often turns out that uh, a lot of that stuff can be prosecuted as conspiracy and the like. Uh, uh, there there is a little less difference between the uh, uh, the legal regimes than than folks tend to think. Um, Canada, uh, Karen, uh, has a regime that's actually a good deal closer to Europe's than the United States uh, in this area, don't they? Indeed, absolutely. I mean, I think the normative framework is there. Essentially, I think uh, you're right in what you said, that in the end, um, it's all about where the emphasis is. In Canada, no rights are absolute, and we do limit uh, speech uh, in a proportional manner. But I think that certain hateful speech is limited in the United States in the end as well. Uh, so I think it is about bridging some differences, but it's about where the emphasis is placed, and this is really nothing new. Um, what is somewhat different is the Internet and social media facilitating distribution, uh, spreading uh, of certain messages, and platforms use analytics in a way that maximizes engagement and that pushes 
um, some of this problematic speech that I think is limited even in the U.S. as, as in Canada. Um, it pushes it to the forefront, and I think that's where the problem may lie. So what you're saying is that uh, in order to goose engagement, uh, uh, the uh, the platforms tend to look for hot button speech that will that people will either like or hate. Exactly. So it tends to encourage extremes, um, and often through the use of analytics. Um, so essentially, the type of speech that is marginal, the type of speech that is hateful, the type of speech that chills other speech and chills the speech of vulnerable groups. Um, and perhaps encourages terrorism, that's the kind of speech that ironically online uh, may be pushed to the forefront. So the normative framework, as you said, is there, certainly there in Canada, but I think even there in the U.S. It's just the medium that exacerbates the problem, facilitates dissemination, and, and, and makes this uh, into more than what it was in the past. So I, I already, though, I'm, I'm starting to get off your bus because uh, what I heard you turning this into was we're going away from trying to get people to, to get knives and drive cars into uh, innocent pedestrians. Uh, uh, that's the kind of speech that everybody's upset about. And I, we can't have a conversation for more than three minutes without you saying, oh, well, it's really, it's really about discouraging minority speakers and, and basically, you know, uh, it, 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 it's, one step away from saying Donald Trump can't tweet because what he says is hate speech. It, it, some of it is cultural. Um, I, I think that there there is, um, I come from the civilian tradition, civil law tradition in, in Quebec, part of Canada, French part of Canada, and we look, are less concerned about the slippery slope. Um, I think it is possible to apply a proportionality framework to different cases. The security um, problem is the most salient, Right. And that's the one that I think is being brought to the forefront, and that's the one that I think there is some consensus. So if we're looking at bridging the divide between uh, U.S. perspective uh, to limiting speech and a European perspective, Canadian perspective to limiting speech, I think what brings us all together is the first example, which is uh, incitement to violence. I think that's the one that needs to be addressed first, uh, and then debates could be had about uh, the limits on uh, other kind of speech, hateful speech, which in Europe is, is, is the limiter extremely stringent, even by Canadian standards. So that's, I think, a secondary debate. Um, but the, the debate regarding security, I think, is, is primordial, and that's where we can all come together and agree um, that, uh, you know, it, 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 that, that's where the Internet um, exacerbates the problem, and that's where we need to address it uh, in a way that is proportional um, and uh, in a way that, uh, that does not create what the train has called a very bad solution to a very real problem. So that's a concern about um, addressing this in a way that, that, that is appropriate. And we can talk a little bit more about how and the who uh, limits uh, undesirable speech rather than the what kind of speech, right? So what kind of speech we can iron out and deal with. And certainly there are nuances between the American approach and other approaches. But what preoccupies me most is the who and the how, right? Who's going to do this curating of content? And how will this? Well, first, I I guess I should say, Canada may not be as enthusiastic about uh, uh, slippery slope arguments, but it's it's been at the bottom of this slope for a while. Uh, uh, I read Mark Stein's stuff, uh, and he has been trashed and prosecuted for hate speech for saying, you know, uh, uh, we're changing our culture by allowing immigration that we shouldn't be allowing, uh, uh, which is a perfectly reasonable political position. and you may disagree with it, but to say, oh, well, you can't say that uh, because it's anti-migrant or something. Or uh, there was another guy who, who spent, you know, uh, years of his life in front of one of uh, uh, the provincial uh, um, human rights commissions saying, you know, you can't make jokes about Islam. Uh, uh, so there have been a lot of uh, pretty uh, far down the slope uh, prosecutions in Canada. Yeah, I, and I think it will be reassuring uh, hopefully for our listeners in the United States to know that uh, Canada has changed its approach in that vein. So um, before, without going into the Canadian legal framework, which I'm sure all of you will find slightly tedious, um, but there used to be uh, an option with human rights commissions uh, going after, because it's not a criminal prosecution, individuals who had uh, spoken in a way uh, that is uh, uh, insightful of hate to vulnerable minorities. It was then decided relatively recently that the standard was not high enough, um, and the, the, it may offend the charter, and so we've moved on 
uh, from that uh, from section 13 um so that's 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 reassuring and th- yes I, 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 and and you you deserve credit for for doing that that's well, right. to, can as as the as journalist non lawyer uh, on the panel but probably one is a little more of a first amendment absolutist my suspicion is than some of your other um panelists um can i just take up a, a couple of issues here incitement yeah. to action there's an there's an American legal history for it. But let's say somebody was just warmly embracing the um, goals of the Islamic State and the intolerance of the Islamic State mm-hmm. um, without actually saying to somebody, and now it's time to go out and, you know, pick up your knives and get in your cars and go commit an awful slaughter like the kind that we saw on London Bridge. I'm not sure that isn't protected speech in the United States. I think it is. I think I think it is as well. And my guess is that this is where we and Theresa May may separate. And that's a big problem when you have an Internet that respects absolutely no border. And uh, I'm not quite sure how you exclude that in Britain and uh, allow it in the United States. I also worry on our slippery slope uh, concerns about just putting ourselves in the position for a moment of Xi Jinping looking at what we're doing and coming up with all kinds of excuses for continuing his crackdown on any separatist movement, any opposition to the Communist Party, all of which he will argue is inciting terrorism, you know, promoting the Falun and so forth. And, you know, we tend to go off and do these without thinking very much about how it empowers the most repressive among the regimes. I completely agree with you. I, um, and uh, we may be, we may turn out to be remarkably grateful that American companies were not allowed to penetrate the Chinese market because the Europeans have, have shown how you can stifle speech in the United States without violating the First Amendment. You tell Facebook and Twitter uh, and uh, other social media sites that you will punish them if they allow this stuff up, and you force them to take it down within 24 hours without having time to do much thinking about it. Uh, I, and they're going to take it down everywhere, and they're not going to take it down just for American uh, uh, or just for European uh, uh, readers. I, and so uh, the Europeans have exported their um, censorship regime uh, uh, without even having to break a sweat. Yeah, and Stuart, if I could chime in here uh, with two quick comments. Uh, one, in terms of protected speech, the example that was given previously, even in countries that do criminalize uh, certain forms of speech and incitement to hate, hate speech, that would be protected speech, right? So that would be constitutionally protected. The question would then be what sort of limits should be imposed, if any, and those limits would have to be proportional. So prima facie, it is protected speech. But about the um, sort of European approach spreading, I've written a piece in the Canadian Bar Review about how uh, the Europeans are inadvertently and ironically appointing these U.S. companies as data controllers. They're appointing these companies at arbit- as arbiters of European private interest. So they're saying to these companies quickly, in a matter of a few seconds, please get rid of what we consider to be hateful. They provide very few criteria. These companies are scrambling because they want to avoid um, the looming threat of more uh, regulation or legislation with greater teeth. And so they're hiring outsourced workers, mostly based in the Philippines. Very few people know about this, right, as content moderators, when the matter of a few seconds have to decide whether this very arduous question that constitutional court judges struggle with, right, whether uh, merely sympathizing with a call to terrorism is the same as calling out for violence, that judgment is made by a 19-year-old um, person sitting in the Philippines with very little training, uh, being paid a pittance, as we would consider, and then they're getting a pat on the back by European regulators saying, great, your stats have improved. But very few of us are looking at who is sanitating, who is sanitizing, excuse me, the Internet, who is curating the Internet. Um, and, and that, I think, is a tremendous matter of concern. So just to divert a second from the content debate, which is essential, to the who and how. 
how are American companies achieving this um, by being subservient to the European demand? How is this being done? It's very hard to, uh, it's a very important question. Uh, the volume is really the issue. Yeah, and um, uh, it's it's extru- I, it's hard to imagine. You, you could turn it over to algorithms, and that would probably be worse. It is not. This is a question yes. without an obvious solution. And the transparency and accountability, I think, is, is even scarier. Um, we have these companies sort of wanting to improve their stats. They're not sure how to go about this. Um, they're not given any guidance by the Europeans. All the Europeans seem to be telling them is improve your statistics, right? With great power comes great responsibility, which is true. Uh, but transparency and accountability are notoriously difficult to cultivate when balancing these delicate constitutional values, freedom of expression, privacy. And this has left to, and I'm surprised at how little coverage this has gotten. And I, I, I completely agree with this one. It, I, it, in, in fact, at every stage as this gets handed off, as this responsibility gets handed off, from governments to private companies and from private companies to Filipino contractors, uh, all of the incentives are to over-delete, over-censor, uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and there's no – I've got a report here that Vera Jarova was bragging about, well, in her typical ineffable way, uh, about what a great success their leaning on um, uh, U.S. social media companies was on how uh, um, more stuff was getting taken down, and they do a breakdown of why things were taken down. Uh, um, and uh, turns out that the two largest categories of takedowns are for anti-Muslim hatred and for xenophobia or anti-migrant hatred. That uh, uh, Both of them are about 17, 18%. Um, so it, it's clearly not aimed at the um, uh, things that are producing attacks like London Bridge. It's aimed at uh, uh, enforcing political correctness by the standards of the European elites that, that you know, gave us Brexit. Uh, um, and, and so... Uh, it's a kind of doubling down, and from Facebook's point of view, Twitter's point of view, uh, um, just delivering. The more you take down, and the faster you do it, the more good press you get from the Europeans. Nobody is saying, gee, did we go too far? Yeah. Their goal is to avoid uh, a stricter legislation, so they're wanting to show one can only assume that they're complying. Uh, but yet there seems to be, as you say, a drive for the debate about the constitutional debate in Canada about proportionality uh, becomes moot because really those who are applying the standards and those standards aren't even clear. These aren't even the Canadian constitutional standards that in the U.S. may be viewed perhaps as excessive, but at least it's appropriate. There are no clear standards, right? It's just someone sitting there and saying, the better our stats, the happier my boss will be. Um, and so, so, so here's, here's a question for David. Um, David, we don't like this, right? This is obviously producing less protected speech than we would think was um, consistent with our law. Uh, but if we tried to say, hey, you can't do that, um, Facebook or, or Google uh, or Twitter is going, or YouTube is going to say, wait a minute, we have a First Amendment right to take down any damn thing we want to. And the fact that it's some other government that is skewing our priorities to get us to take down stuff that they don't like is, you know, that's not anything that the U.S. Constitution has anything to say about. Well, that's right. It, and you start with their terms of service, and they can interpret their terms of service any way they want. And they can rewrite their terms of service. They are not a government entity. So here's where the issue will get interesting. Supposing somebody, and I'm making up a, a hypothetical here, but it's not, it's hardly one that would be, um, hard to imagine. Supposing somebody agglomerates their, um, distasteful tweets on these issues and writes an op-ed for the New York Times or the Washington Post that goes up on their website that uh, makes a xenophobic argument for why you should keep migrants out or maybe even an argument about why you should take um, uh, people of certain suspect classes and gather them up as the United States did wrongfully with Japanese Americans and put them in internment camps until you've got a, this problem solved. Could you imagine a situation in which that op-ed could not be read on the web in Britain or someplace else in Europe? 
could you imagine a situation where somebody would have to take out their VPN, their virtual private network in Britain, and tunnel into the United States in order to read an op-ed on the pages of the New York Times or the Washington Post? I don't but think we're all that far from that. It's balkanizing the Internet. It sure is. Uh, I, I, I think it's worse than close to there in Britain, uh, but there are some places in Europe where certain forms of speech, Germany in particular, Nazi speech, for example, which is mm-hmm. quite aggressively banned, um, where the rules are stricter. Uh, despite, but despite what Theresa May says, Britain, I think, will stay closer to an Anglo approach. But I wonder if it matters. You know, I, it, 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 we've gotten used to the Google's approach to this, which is to say, okay, we'll take it down on Google FR uh, and we'll leave it up on Google.com. Um, but Facebook, as far as I know, has never taken that position or Twitter. It, it, they're much more it's everywhere or it's nowhere. Um, and I have not seen any indication that Twitter takes stuff down just in one geographic location. Uh, uh, that's that's more engineering, and they probably just take it down. Uh, and uh, if that's the case, then it doesn't matter that the U.K. is a little closer to the U.S., um, it's going to be German standards that govern. That's right. The lowest, the lowest common denominator of tolerance of the speech ends up guiding the speech, and that's just where you don't want... This happened in a constitutional basis for the U.S., and you guys are lawyers, not me. You certainly wouldn't want the government making that decision. Now, if companies make that decision, you're in a different place. But it's a company driven by government. It's just a different government. That's right. And and therefore, if the courts end up saying you wouldn't do this if you weren't under pressure from the government, then that... That raises a whole new set of issues. So that is an interesting question. I, you know, uh, when um, when the FCC came along and limited bandwidth uh, uh, came along, we tinkered with our notions of what the First Amendment required to say. Well, we want to make sure that there is a diversity of views, I and mean, maybe it didn't work out this well, but, uh, uh, and we said, so we're going to actually require certain kinds of speech, the fairness doctrine, et cetera, um, on the ground that the technology otherwise would produce less diversity of views. Uh, uh, I wonder if you might want to say the same thing uh, here, that if you're afraid that every government in the world will censor American media except the American government, you might want to have some kind of restriction on the exercise of that authority over what gets published in the United States. Um, yeah, I mean, that, uh, that I would get quite concerned about that because we're a global news organization. And other American news organizations are global, and, you know, CNN is global, and MSNBC can be global. And uh, so at that moment, you don't want to be in the balkanized situation where the United States uh, is the one place where you have this going on as a free discussion, and every place else finds a way to go censor it. I think that's a pretty dangerous place for all of us to be. All right. Well, we have we have just totally obliterated our news roundup by talking about this, but I think it was really useful. Karen, you you get the last word. Oh, I appreciate that. No, I, I was just going to say that's true. But the everywhere else, all of us, other countries, so to speak, have spent all the post-war years developing these very strict standards for limiting speech, and now, in a way, we're abdicating and letting these go to private companies, and that certainly in Canada is not where we want to be. So I think we need to reassert um, our our, uh, jurisdiction and try to have a a, a better view of how these companies can um, limit certain forms of speech in a way that is conducive to to protecting security and not catering to the lowest common denominator, as you said. Yeah, Vera Jirova should go out and hire those damn Filipinos to do the work for her. <laughs> All right. Uh, so let's let's roll through the other news of the week. Uh, uh, Privacy Shield, the EU, announced that it was not going to go back and try to beat up the uh, Trump administration uh, to get more concessions, probably because they aren't going to get any more. Uh, and instead, they're going to look at uh, whether uh, uh President Trump is complying with President Obama's promises. Is that right, Maury? Yeah, and I think it's consistent with the approach the European Commission has taken. A lot of people think that in Europe, or at least rights organizations, think the privacy shield should have gone further, but the commission was robust in pushing it through to keep transatlantic data flows flowing. 
and um, Vera Jarova, the Justice Commissioner you just mentioned, um, has basically said in March in a speech with Wilbur Ross in D.C. that they're just going to look at the functioning of the privacy shield, um, and there's been some senior um, EU officials who've been reported to be repeating that in the last week. Um, and, you know, I, I think there is concerns about whether the Trump administration is really doing what the Obama administration said would be done, but the truth of the matter is U.S., government does respect uh, privacy in general, and there's not big evidence of um, violations, so I think it will, the, the review will probably roll ahead okay. And um, the, um, uh, the issue that kicked all of this off, uh, uh, the, uh, the disclosures of widespread uh, surveillance in the United States that uh, Snowden made, continue to uh, roil the courts. Uh, uh, Wikimedia brought a lawsuit saying, hey, we're pretty sure that if you're collecting everything that goes over the Internet, uh, um, that you will have collected our stuff and we should have standing. And uh, 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 the Court of Appeals agreed with them. Is that right, Aaron? Did you look at that? Uh, uh, you're not obligated to, uh, to follow American standing law, but I thought you might have. <laughs> I, I, I try to follow it. I, I taught uh, comparative constitutional law at, at Columbia Law for um, quite a few years, and now I'm back in the, I'm back in, on home turf, so to speak, but I, I do follow it. Um, I, I think what, what, what's really interesting is that we shouldn't and can't have an ad hoc approach to these things, right? There has to be a, a, a normative framework, and it, it, people tend to look at this as a dichotomy, right? You have uh, privacy on one side and security on the other, whereas as Rowan Cutler, who's our former uh, Minister of Justice, said, the right to life is a human right. It's not about maximizing one side. It's about the least restrictive means. Um, and if, if we're in American law uh, territory, the Riley decision, which did not answer these questions directly, but I think opened the door. And if we look at uh, Chief Justice Roberts' opinion in Riley, I think that's a good starting point uh, for where this debate might want to take shape and sort of the building blocks about where we might want to go a larger picture rather than commenting specifically uh, on, on, on this particular case. Yeah, well, they, I, 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 I'm usually pretty conservative about what should be in court, but I, uh, I've, I've never quite understood modern standing law. It seems to me it is obvious that uh, Wikimedia's communications ought to have been picked up, uh, given how many there are. Now, why they think they should be secret, I mean, I, uh, most of that stuff is public edits, but uh, I, I, arguing that they can't show that they were... Um, intercepted is uh, uh, does strike me as kind of um, uh, hyper technical and uh, uh, implausible. Uh, so, uh, I, much as I regret the idea that we're going to have more legal challenges to NSA surveillance and ask the judges what they think about uh, uh, something as important to our survival as uh, uh, goods uh, overseas surveillance, uh, much as I think that's a bad idea, I kind of think that trying to keep it out on uh, standing grounds is implausible. Um, uh, Maureen, the Chinese did put their cybersecurity law into effect, and if I remember right, they made a, a last-minute tweak of some sort. Uh, uh, did you follow that? Yeah, the, the last-minute tweak, and you talked about this in some detail a month ago with our colleague Susan Monroe, was that there are rules that the Cyberspace uh, Administration of China, CAC, has uh, published in draft about security reviews prior to export of data, they've said that, that that aspect of subsidiary legislation under the cybersecurity law will not take effect now. They delayed it till likely the end of 2018. Um, but a lot of the law is in force, and it's extremely confusing and broad, and people are scrambling a bit to figure out what to do. Yeah, I, I, we certainly are getting a lot of uh, inquiries in the Beijing office about it, uh, and it's going to turn out to be a, a mess and highly discretionary and uh, arbitrary and all of the usual sorts of things you'd expect with a law like this. Uh, um, all, all right. Um, well, I, I wanted to take one second to uh, um, uh, mock uh, uh, right-wing bloggers uh, uh, who – have suddenly discovered a FISA opinion that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, uh, uh, and they're using it as proof that the Obama administration spied on Americans. It's just 
sad, uh, and, and the, the, the notion is somehow it's tied into uh, unmasking and uh, a Trump uh, surveillance, and uh, it really could not be further from uh, the truth, and you wonder if these guys are even reading the decision that they cite, which pretty clearly says certain communications that mention terrorist contact information uh, uh, are stored and then were not supposed to be searched for the names of other Americans who would almost certainly be terrorist suspects but uh, um, uh, because they made a promise to the court that they wouldn't do it and then it turned out that they about 5% of the time um, they didn't live up to that promise and it looks as though the reason for that is that the people who had access to those databases would be entering a search for the name of somebody they, they were concerned about. Uh, they'd enter the name and they'd say do a, an all-source search to see if there's anything new uh, on this person that I am following. Uh, and that search was not supposed to include this this particular database, uh, and but the only way they kept it out of that particular database is somebody was supposed to remember every time to say, oh, but don't look at the 702 database, look at the other databases, and 5% of the time they forgot. The idea that this is a espionage uh, a scandal or an Obama surveillance or an FBI surveillance uh, uh, scandal, uh, it's certainly uh, you know something that exercised the court. It certainly shouldn't have happened, but I, I just, I, I, I'm astonished that, well, I guess I'm not astonished, but I'm disappointed that the right wing and, and including some people like Glenn Reynolds, who I respect, just picked it up and assumed that it's, uh, it's an Obama scandal. All right. Um, um, David, um, you've written a lot about um, U.S. penetration of North Korean uh, um, uh, uh, launch technology, uh, uh, maybe their nuclear program, um, their cyber program. Um, I've been struck by the fact that uh, Kim Jong-un is on a roll. I mean, he is, he, he's getting these, uh, these missiles in the air uh, with surprising frequency and surprising accuracy, as far as we can tell. Um, I, I guess my question is, is it the case that we, weren't, we aren't successfully, well, are we hacking his uh, program but not doing it as well, or is there reason to doubt the, the earlier reports that we were hacking his program? Oh, I don't think there's any reason to doubt the earlier reports. There's a big program, and it makes sense. I mean, if you think about this the way President Obama uh, first approached it uh, when he accelerated the cyber program in early 2014, as we reported back in, in February, Stuart, um, the math of this is pretty clear. So uh, here he was heading toward a North Korea that was improving uh, its nuclear program and improving its missile program simultaneously. There's not a whole lot you can do about the nuclear program at this point. They have 12 to 20 weapons. They're working away on shrinking them. Sooner or later, they will get one to the size that it can fit inside a um, uh, the warhead of a missile. But you do have some opportunities to slow them down on the missile program where they have not yet reached the capability of designing an intercontinental ballistic missile. They can leave the atmosphere, re-enter, come in and survive the heat uh, and vibration of that and land accurately on target. And for those who know their history of the U.S. missile program, this took the United States a long time to figure out. Um, you know, this is one of those things where it actually is rocket science. <laughs> yeah. So um, uh, what was the reason to go after uh, the missile program in a cyber way? Well, our main defense right now against incoming uh, North Korean missiles is the um, missile defense system on which we have spent tens of billions of dollars and $300 billion, if you go back to the Eisenhower era forward. Uh, and our main uh, interceptors for the North Korean system are in Alaska and California. One of them was tested successfully last week. 
it's a good thing that was a success because our success rate is barely 50%. And that's if you take an extremely liberal view of what counts as a successful interception. So President Obama looked at this and said, we can't live with a situation where I could go on TV and say, uh, my fellow Americans, um, the North Koreans have developed missiles that can reach the United States a few years from now, uh, but don't worry, we can intercept half of them. Doesn't sound like a really great presidential speech, does it? So he no. needed to up the percentage, and that would come from something called left of launch. And left of launch means stopping a missile before it gets launched, or sabotaging it while it's on the launch pad in a way that it will drop into the drink. And the North Koreans are an unusual case because they were initially pretty good at missile launches, and they've been doing this for a long time. And then, starting in 2014, they began to have a huge series of failures with a, a medium-range missile called the Musadon which appears to be the one that the United States most targeted. And their failure rate was running at about 88% before Kim Jong-un uh, brought the program down uh, last fall. Now, you note correctly that they've been doing a whole lot better lately. They've been doing a whole lot better with a very different missile, one that operates from a solid rocket fuel instead of the liquid the way the Musadon does, that um, is based on more of an old and tested Russian design. Um, and uh, those successes have got to be quite disturbing to the Pentagon and raises the question that if at least some of the failures of the past three years were attributable to the U.S. cyber program, uh, then why is that not succeeding as well this year against a different kind of missile? Yes, and, and in fact, uh, you, you could make the argument that if the, uh, our program persuaded the um, uh, Koreans to move from liquid to solid-state uh, fuel, uh, it's a disaster uh, strategically. Well, um, a lot of places moved to solid fuel, and it's very possible that the North Koreans would have done that absent any other U.S. operation. There are a lot of reasons to move, move to solid fuel. The North Korean biggest fear is that U.S. satellites would see a liquid fuel rocket being fueled up on the pad, a process that takes many hours, and hit it kinetically from a ship out in the Pacific before it ever got launched. With a solid fuel rocket, the fuel's already in it. You can put the whole thing on a mobile launcher. You can hide it in a mountain, in a tunnel, and then roll it out, set it up, and launch it in minutes before the United States would have an opportunity to respond. And uh, that is one reason that they would move to solid fuel, even absent the U.S. program. Right. So they they, they were going there anyway. Yet, but they were they were uh, going there anyway. Now, interesting question that I don't know the answer to, which is. Why might the United States be more successful against one type of rocket than another? And uh, because the fuel itself doesn't have a whole lot to do with the cyber part of the operation. And um, there are conflicting theories on that, and I'm not sure I'm persuaded by any of them. So all we know is whatever it was we were doing, it, it was a stopgap, and uh, it's not working uh, uh, as well now, which is also true for what we did uh, uh, in Stuxnet. Uh, it seems to have had an impact. Uh, uh, slowed, maybe it slowed them down a year, maybe it slowed them down two years, but you know, it's not uh, a cure-all. And isn't that always the case with cyber? Because systems change naturally, and systems change by design in order to keep people from using the same techniques to go defeat them. So what works one week in cyber may not work the next. Yep, it sounds like uh, that's that's probably what we ought to get used to uh, uh, with respect to this weapon. Uh, it's a kind of uh, um, strategic hole in its use as a weapon because it will never do more. We can never be sure it'll do more than slow people down in the direction that they're already going. That's right. All right. So uh, uh, meanwhile, the North Koreans themselves are getting 
better at um, uh, launching attacks. I mean, I, nothing nothing gets you interested in cyber offense like being uh, on the uh, receiving end of a cyber attack, and uh, that means that both the uh, Iranians and the North Koreans have gotten a uh, uh, very strong incentive to get good at cyber attacks, and they are both getting good at them. Uh, uh, you had an interesting story about the extent to which they are using uh, undercover um, uh, North Korean nationals in China and Southeast Asia to launch attacks because, of course, launching them from uh, North Korea with its four Internet nodes is a little hard to get away with. That's right. And uh, so when you go back and you look at, say, the most famous North Korean uh, attack on the United States, the Sony attack, um, we don't believe that very much of that came right out of North Korea. We may have been commanded out of North Korea, but uh, they have hired help, just as the Russians and the Chinese and the Iranians have hired help. And they have placed it all around the world, and that helps make it hard to track back to North Korea uh, as well. And so that makes perfect sense. Um, North Korea, though, is is particularly well insulated against cyber retribution because, as you say, it's got fewer IP addresses than most blocks in a major American city. And so you're not going to do a counter cyber attack that's going to take down an infrastructure that's not really very dependent on cyber at all, and that's what makes it such a good asymmetric weapon for the North Koreans. So one of the things that we, we, we talked a, a, a couple of weeks ago uh, with the uh, CEO of uh, FireEye, uh, Kevin Mandia, uh, about how good the Vietnamese have gotten at cyber attacks. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, he said they were very good uh, in... Quality less clearly strong in scale, um, but when you say that uh, so the North Koreans are moving into Southeast Asia to carry out their attacks, is there a possibility that they are training the Vietnamese in exchange for being able to use their infrastructure? Uh, entirely possible, but not just the Vietnamese. We've seen some evidence of North Korean activity in Thailand. Uh, we've certainly seen it in southern China. And, you know, we even heard Vladimir Putin the other day when he acknowledged for the first time that there could have been Russians involved in the hack of the American election system, say, but of course these were not uh, government actors. Uh, they were completely private uh, actors. You know, this is the variant of the Chinese argument, you know, Teenagers nowadays, what do you go do with them? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's, it seems to be a common trope. It could be a 400-pound hacker in his bedroom, right? That, that's absolutely right. And, you know, the fact of the matter is that you can trace a hack back to an IP address. You might trace it back to a specific computer. But you have a very, very difficult time tracing it back to whose fingers are on the keyboard unless you actually have either eyes or audio right on that. Well, I, I, I tend to believe, be a believer that, uh, uh, as, as, as Kevin said, they have 650 different um, uh, tells that they're looking for that help them to attribute uh, a particular uh, uh, attack. Uh, and they don't reveal them all. Uh, it's, it's very hard to fake it. Uh, uh, and so I think attribution is, is only going to get better. Right? Uh, and the people who, you know, when, when Putin says, uh, well, it could have been a three-year-old girl, uh, I, he's trolling us. Uh, and he's trolling us with out-of-date information, I think. I think that's right. Um, think about how fast the United States attributed the Sony attack to uh, North Korea. And the president came out and actually declared that. And he was immediately attacked by many people who said, no, it wasn't the North Koreans. It was a couple of kids in a basement in South Carolina and so forth. Then in January of the following year, uh, just a month after the attacks were over, we ran a story about how the United States was up inside the North Korean systems, which left it pretty clear that they were able to go back and listen and hear what had led to the attacks. And we now know, based on things that uh, people who have left the Obama administration have said in open testimony, 
that we had additional collection, probably uh, a signals intelligence, that helped trace back the Russia hack directly to uh, the Kremlin. Now, we don't know that they had uh, Vladimir Putin on tape, but certainly people around him and talking about the Russian involvement here. And that's a key part of attribution, and it's one of the reasons that the U.S. was so reluctant in public in those really terribly done intelligence reports they released at the end of the Obama administration to lay out the real case that it was Russia. Yeah, now that, that, those were disasters. They were not meant ever. I mean, they, they were a form that was not supposed to be about attribution, uh, and they just tacked a little bit of attribution on because it was politically convenient, but it was, yeah, it was a disaster for the reputation of DHS, uh, uh, and I think Odie and I both. Uh, uh, well, let me, let me ask you one last question uh, as, as we finish up, uh, and I wondered if you've gone back to look at this. There were stories right after the French election that uh, uh, Emmanuel Macron and his uh, campaign had beaten the Russian uh, 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 cyber uh, uh, attack by um, giving them fake information, forcing them to deal with a bunch of bad credentials that they had deliberately logged on to uh, uh, with different credentials uh, so that uh, the Russians would spend a, a lot of wasted time trying to find stuff that wasn't there, and then had given them... Uh, persuasive-looking documents that could be proved false if you took a couple of days to spend time on it, uh, uh, and that all of those tools had uh, taken the sting out of uh, the Russian uh, uh, leak operation. I, have you had a chance to evaluate that further? Because I, 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 I remain just a tad skeptical about how much of that was post-election uh, uh, football spiking and how much of it was real. Well, we have had a chance to go back to some of it, not all of it, including not some of the, um, uh, the fake documents. But it is certainly true that they benefited from the fact that the United States and others and companies like Facebook and Google and others came to the French and said, here's what happened in the United States that you want to be aware of. And we also know that the NSA and uh, other U.S. government institutions shared uh, intelligence with uh, the French so that they could see some specific attacks coming. So you'll remember that there was one particular attack that happened just hours before the silent period went into effect in the French elections when candidates can't say anything during the sort of Friday night and Saturday before a Sunday election. And what ended up happening was that that attack, which we believe was Russian-inspired but have a hard time proving it, um, didn't really have much effect in the end. And so what it tells you is that information warfare techniques, while they can be effective if you don't see them coming, look at what happened here in the United States, can be, um, are pretty fragile if you do see them coming and you warn people to go exercise some pretty heavy duty judgment. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna suggest that, that they weren't as effective in the U.S. either. It's true that the true information that was leaked, um, hurt Hillary Clinton, uh, but you know it was it was stuff about uh, how they were treating Bernie Sanders, which you know you you when your choice is Hillary versus uh, Donald Trump, uh, uh, holding a grudge over how she treated Bernie Sanders is not exactly the most rational thing you could do. Uh, and so well, I, I, I think that I, I think I think that's right, but I think it went deeper than that, Stuart. I mean, uh, Secretary Clinton said the other day in an appearance out in California that. She believed that the Russians got some outside help on the issue of timing and the broadcasting of this data through bots. And uh, it is interesting that the Podesta emails, which distracted a lot of attention because they gave a lot of detail from inside the campaign, though nothing particularly uh, scurrilous, as you point out, came out right after that um, tape of uh, then-candidate Trump talking pretty crudely about how he deals with attractive women, or women to whom he is attractive, I should say. And it came out just hours later. 
And um, it does raise the question, did the Russians know how to do that? Did that happen at WikiLeaks, which is pretty politically attuned? Was there any collusion? And it's the, that's the core of the collusion investigation that's underway right now. And we don't know the answers to this. Um, but it is interesting that Secretary Clinton, for the first time, sort of gave voice to that question just the other day. I think that would be interesting. I, I think you're right, because I've never quite understood what collusion uh, uh, people suspected. But that at least is a concrete statement with somebody in the campaign saying, I know you've got this, uh, here's when you should deploy it. That would certainly be um, a, a shocking development uh, a, and uh, uh, worth investigating. Uh, um, as is, as is the targeting of the, of the bots. I mean, some of the bots appear to have been targeted toward key states. Now, you know, it's hard to target bots on something like Twitter, which is we were having our, our earlier discussions, um, uh, but uh, it it is interesting if some of these thoughts were made to appeal to voters of a certain kind, you know, had basically took on personas that would seem like you know midwestern, middle aged white males who might be more tempted to vote for. Mr. Trump and Secretary Clinton. Uh, and that's something that's still going to require some analysis. Well, if, if it turns out that the Russians were better at targeting tweets than the uh, Clinton campaign, uh, there's a scandal there, but I'm not sure it's, uh, it's the Russians. That, uh, oh, yeah, uh, you're right. <laughs> oh, okay. David, thank you so much. This was, uh, this was a terrific conversation. Karen Eltis uh, uh, from uh, University of Ottawa. Uh, thank you. Maury Shank, thanks for participating. This has been episode 168 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, Karen Eltis is on because one of our uh, listeners uh, suggested her. We're really grateful to them, uh, and we will be sending out a uh, highly coveted Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast mug to the uh, person who suggested her uh, participation. Uh, uh, so if you want to win one of those, uh, send suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Coming up, we're going to have Ben Buchanan, author and fellow at Harvard University, uh, Jim Miller, president of Adaptive Strategies, and Rick Leggett, former NSA deputy director and a remarkably candid uh, former deputy director. Uh, uh, all of them uh, interviewed on the podcast. So we hope you'll join us for those on other episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.